perceptions of artists and creators shift with our perceptions of society. At times we have perceived them as intellectuals, at times as professionals, and at times as artisans. Yet in the digital age, where the materials to create certain kinds of art have never been more readily accessible, who truly gets to claim the title of artist? This question is at the heart of Bill Duresowitz's new book, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. Mr. Duresowitz is an award-winning essayist and critic and a frequent public speaker across the country. He's also author of the best-selling book, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. He has taught English at both Yale and Columbia before becoming a full-time writer in 2008. Our format today is a little different than our normal format. Mr. Duresowitz will deliver some remarks and read a few passages from The Death of the Artist. And then we'll bring in Professor Rebecca Mondrak of the Penny W. Stamps School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan for a moderated conversation. She's an artist and writer whose practice is at the intersections of art, activism, and creative resistance to consumer culture. Then in the final portion of our program, as we always do, we will, we will have your questions. You can text your questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet your questions at the City Club and our team will work them into the program. Before we get to the conversation, I wanna thank City Club's generous members, sponsors, and donors who support our virtual forums. For a full list, please visit cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work by making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org. And now it's my pleasure to welcome to our virtual City Club stage, Bill Duresowitz. Bill, hello, and welcome to the program. Welcome to the forum. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks for, thank you very much um, for having me. Um, I wanna to say to start that uh, this is really special for me because I actually have a personal connection to City Club. My father-in-law, John Nussbaum, who was a newspaper man at the Plain Dealer, was a member for many years. Um, my wife was still living in Cleveland when we met and I spent many happy months there. Uh, I have a lot of great memories from Cleveland and this is really nice uh, to be doing this now. Um, thank you also to Rebecca for participating with me. I really appreciate, um, I really appreciate that. So I'm just gonna talk for about 15 minutes about the book. Um, I wrote this book because I had a question that I wanted to answer for, for my readers and for myself. Um, how are artists making a living now? There are two stories you hear about this. Um, the one that gets wider circulation because it's the one that's being pushed by Silicon Valley is that there's never been a better time to be an artist because of the internet and because of production tools like uh, you know the camera on your iPhone and music software. You can produce your stuff cheaply. You can distribute it for free on the internet. You don't have to ask permission. You can circumvent the gatekeepers. You can just put your stuff out there. And the story continues. You can have this wonderful life as a creative doing what you love. The other story comes from artists themselves. Uh, if you think about what musicians have been saying, first of all, since you know, Napster 20 years ago, but also writers, visual artists, creators of film and television. I deal with all of those in the book. Uh, yeah, you can put your stuff out there, but no one's gonna pay you for it, or it's gonna be very hard to get anybody to pay you for it. That same internet that makes distribution free uh, has been driving, well, because of those same Silicon Valley companies, has been driving the cost, the price of content down to zero or close to zero. Those are the stories. Now, my question was, okay, I believe, I'm inclined to believe the artists. I don't trust Silicon Valley. I think the artists are in a better position to know, but people are still making art now. Some people are even still making a living making art, or at least part of a living making art. Some of their living making art. So I wanted to know, how are they doing it? And to answer that question, I asked a lot of artists. The book was based on about 140 in-depth interviews with musicians and writers and visual artists and people who make film and television and producers and editors and uh, academics. Um, and the book is my answer. 
or most of the book is my answer. I'll explain what, what else is in the book in a few minutes. Um, but I start with the broad conditions that are shaping the making of art today, the making of a living for making art today. Not just the internet and what it's doing to the price of content, but also housing costs, which have been soaring for 20 years, tuition costs for college and art school, the decline of cultural institutions that help support artists, whether those are for-profit like publishers and labels, or nonprofit like uh, orchestras or even universities themselves. So what I say in short in this part of the book is that there's bad news, which is that everything does indeed pay much less. There's good news, which is that there are indeed tons of new opportunities at, because of the internet, and you really can do it all yourself without having to, you know, get a manager or an agent or a publisher or a label. And there's bad news about the good news. There are tons of new opportunities, yeah, and there are millions of people pursuing them. You can do it all yourself, but you also have to. Then I turn to that thing. What does it mean to do it yourself? Or just to, just to do it as an artist now? Uh, the nuts and bolts of being, as one painter put it to me, a one-man band, a single-person small business, self-production self-marketing, self-promotion, self-management. And then I drill down even more because my main goal in the book is to give people, artists and non-artists, as specific and granular a picture as possible of what the economic life of working artists today looks like. So I have one chapter on each of those four arts, music, writing, visual art, and film and television. And to go even further, I have half a dozen profiles of creative artists in each of those chapters. And I'm going to read one of those profiles in a few minutes so you get a a sense of what I'm trying to do in the book. I'll just say first that I said before that the answer to my question is most of the book. I also have a section where I talk about how I think these new circumstances are changing both art and the role of the artist in society. Because those things are not permanent, they're not eternal. It's not true that, for example, artists have always spoken truth to power. That's really not true. Um, Basically, now, what happens to art and artists, including the possibility of speaking truth to the audience, when artists are fully immersed in the market like never before? And then I conclude with a section about what needs to be done. There's a chapter on art schools and what needs to be done there, a chapter on piracy and copyright and the evil doings of big tech, because that's a very big part of the story. That's why big tech is in my subtitle. And finally, a chapter on the way that artists are organizing to fight back and the larger structural reforms that I think are necessary to make life easier for artists now, to make life more possible. So, like I said, to give you a sense of the texture of the book and of artists' lives today, I'm going to read one of my profiles. It's one of the writers. It's actually the first writer of the six that I talk about. Nicole Deeker is pretty much the ideal person to have tried to self-publish a work of literary fiction. Deeker grew up in small-town Missouri, the older of two daughters of a piano teacher and a music professor. Her upbringing taught her to value the arts. But above all, she told me, it taught her to practice. Quote, the idea that every day you're going to sit down on your instrument and you're going to try to get better at it, that taught me as much about how to be an artist as the actual art itself. In college and her 20s, Deeker studied music and theater and tried to make it as a musician before realizing that she didn't have the talent for an actual career. One day, to earn some extra money, she started writing for Crowdsource, which she called one of those content sites that people slag on because they pay so badly, taking micro gigs like writing recipes for food.com for $5 a piece. She turned out to be really good at it, and more important, really fast. Writing was the first thing where people kept asking me for more, she said, so she started pitching other sites and hustling for other gigs and tracking her income to make sure that she was earning more each week. And five years later, she said, now I'm here. Here being a flourishing freelance career. 
In 2013, her, full -time, her first year of full-time writing, Deeker earned about $40,000. Three years later, she was up to more than twice that. Speed was still her secret weapon, along with meticulous organization and a musician's sense of discipline. In 2016, she accepted more than 700 assignments and published over half a million words. The book that we're talking about today is not a short book, and half a million words is four times the length of this book. And that was one year, which is mind-blowing to me. Meanwhile, Deeker had been working on a novel. It was a fictionalized version of her family's story. She added a third sister, a sort of little women for millennials. She wrote it as a series of discrete vignettes, about three to five pages each, both because she was used to composing at that kind of length and because she had to fit the writing in around her other work. How did she manage it, I asked, on top of everything else. She said, I practiced. The result, The Biographies of Ordinary People in Two Volumes, is a lovely, unpretentious story suffused with feeling that unfolds at the speed of life. When she was ready, she queried agents, which is what you do, all of whom told her that the book was not sufficiently commercial for a mainstream press, which is what agents do often. One of them said you could publish it some other way as what she called an art book, which made Deeker think, you just said I made art. That's everything I ever wanted. But she also wanted to publish it, which meant she decided to, to publish it herself. And since she's a prolific uh, blogger, she started a new blog to document the process called This Week in Self-Publishing. It reads, in retrospect, like a novel about putting out a novel, complete with plot twists and dramatic ironies and a passage from innocence to experience. The story begins about four months before volume one is released. She hopes to sell 5,000 copies, she tells us, which is a lot even for a commercially published novelist, including three to 500 pre-orders by publication day. She has already, it is clear, done a ton of groundwork as her self-publishing platform, and there are well over a dozen. She has chosen pronouns which she loves. It's enabled her to do comparative cover research, Amazon category research, and price research, provides her with advanced reading copies, which you need for reviewers, and gives her a great looking order site. Her only worry is that if pronouns should ever shut down, she'll lose the novel's ISBN number, the unique commercial product code that's on the back of every book, taking her metrics and sales data with it. Over the next few months, we watch her send the book out for reviews, place articles about it, tap her freelance network for marketing leads, do podcasts, plan a tour, defend herself from sounding calculating and strategic, and remind us that although she wrote the book from love, she can't just, quote, fling words into the sky without any dream of long-term financial stability. A month and a half before the launch, she loses all of the pre-orders she received through Amazon, which of course is most of them, because of a glitch in pronoun software. By publication day, Deeker has sold 109 copies. Remember, her minimum goal was 300. She puts a brave face on it. Readers are responding well. She's gotten a couple of lovely Amazon reviews. The launch event was great. And she can actually hold a copy of her very own novel. She posts a picture of it on her bookshelf between Alison Bechtel and Jane Smiley. It's everything a debut author could want, she says. Then she presses on. She applies for awards, pitches to reviewers and bloggers, does promos and discounts and giveaways, and thinks about hiring a publicist. There's something poignant about the way that Deeker can sometimes straddle the line between real authorhood and newbie self-delusion. One of the awards that she submits the novel for is the Pulitzer Prize. She's excited to discover that you can, in fact, just send your book to Fresh Air or the New York Times. She hears from the New York Review of Books. 
they're inviting her to buy an ad. Gradually, it sinks in that the novel will not be the success that Decker had hoped for. A month and a half after launch, she adjusts her sales target down from 3,000 to 500, forgetting that it had been 5,000. 10 months after that, a year after the book came out, having started the entire process with what she calls an advance of $6,900 that she collected over Patreon, a crowdfunding site, she is now about $1,000 in the red, book sales alone having grossed a total of only about $1,600. Meanwhile, Pronoun, her self-publishing platform, has indeed folded. She reluctantly moves the book to Kindle Direct Publishing, which is owned by Amazon. She also learns that Goodreads, which is also owned by Amazon, will start charging authors for giveaways, a key marketing tool for independent authors. Self-publishing, she's discovered, does not really give you the kind of control she had thought because you're always at the mercy of the platforms. In the midst of it all, she writes a long, tormented post about the sacrifices she is making for the novel. We've already learned that she will end up spending nearly every free minute on it for three years, sacrifices including being less available to family and friends. But the truth is, she says, that I want it more than anything. I have structured my entire life to have this choice. My job is to be good enough to get to keep making this choice for as long as I can. Just a couple of more minutes. Uh, first, to just pull out a few themes from the story that I just read that recur throughout the book. Obviously, the incredibly hard work that this person is putting in, that all artists put in, contrary to the kind of idea that's out there that artists are like indolent weirdos, that making art is like a leisure activity for the self-indulgent. Also, the possibilities the new technologies create, the high hopes these possibilities often give rise to, the difficult realities these hopes often meet, and finally, the incredible perseverance with which those difficulties are met. I started this book from a place of enormous gratitude for artists and what they give us, what, what they've given me, what artist, art has meant to me in my life, what I think it means to all of us. I also started with a great deal of empathy for what artists go through, but that empathy only deepened as I conducted the interviews and I found out what people are really going through. But the interviews also give me something else, which is the tremendous sense of admiration, even beyond, I mean, I'd always admired the talent of artists, people who make good art, great art. What I didn't understand was fully was their toughness, resourcefulness, tenacity, courage, resilience, as well as their optimism and their generosity. I did not write this book. I want to be very clear. I did not write this book to discourage anyone from being an artist or continuing to be an artist. But I did write it to give people a reality check. I wanted younger artists in particular to understand what they're up against. And I want all artists to understand that they're not alone. As for the rest of us, the audience, I wanted it to be a wake up call. So let me conclude with a couple of short passages from my introduction that will bring this into focus. How much time during an average day do you spend consuming art? not just visual art, art, not just high art, art, all art, narratives in books, narratives on television, jazz on the stereos, stereo, songs in your earphones, paintings, sculptures, photographs, concerts, ballet, movies, poetry, plays, several hours a day, no doubt. Given the way that people listen to music at this point, possibly every waking minute. So those are the stakes, that's how important art is in our lives. Now here's the second passage. If most of us are oblivious to the plight of artists now, there is an obvious reason for that. Not only is there still a lot of art being made, there is much, much more of it at lower cost than ever. For us, the consumers of art, there really hasn't ever been a better time. At least 
not if you equate quantity with quality or do not worry over much about the workers at the other end of the supply chain. First, we had fast food. Then we had fast fashion. Now we have fast art, fast music, fast writing, fast video, photography, design, and illustration, made cheaply and consumed in haste. We can gorge ourselves to our heart's content. How nourishing these products are and how sustainable the systems that create them are questions that we need to ask ourselves. Thank you. And uh, now I invite Rebecca to join the conversation. Thanks. Thanks. Um, and and I, could I remind the audience that you can submit a question? Uh, to, you can tweet at City Club, or um, there's a number on the screen that you can text your questions to. So, thank you, Bill. This is, uh, I mean, it's been fascinating to read your book over the past week. Um, I, it's the first time that a writer has explored what it means to be an artist um, in this time especially in um, such a real, no illusions kind of way. Um, so yeah, it was, it was at, at times, um, I, I don't know, it's sort of like uh, someone had peeked inside my world in, in a way that was a little bit shocking or, or um, you know, and I mentioned to you like a journal, like somebody had read a journal that I hadn't written, um, which, was, which was really fascinating. And, and one of the things I've been thinking about is I'm curious with your um, example of, of Nicole Deeker, this one woman band, um, you know, her sales weren't so high. She's put all of this time into this endeavor. She doesn't have a big audience, um, but at the same time, she's acting as an artist. Um, she's produced a work, she's defied the gatekeepers. Um, and to some degree, she's distributed the work. So. Is that enough? Um, are the costs too high? In some ways, you 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 seem willing to be somewhat ambiguous about it and to not make value judgments. And how did you decide throughout the book, as you were interviewing artists, um, when when you would you know um, sort of have a point and a perspective, and when you would just lay things out the way that they they are? Oh no, no, I I really try to avoid value judgments in this book which since you know me, you know that that's not easy for me. And I have that long kind of analytic chapter where I, where I, I make judgments, but I sort of keep them quarantined, let's say, in that chapter. Because, yeah, I have my opinions about uh, what is art, what is good art, um, what, what I th would think is worth it, but that's not the point. Um, the point is exactly what you just said. Like, I, I'm, I'm trying to... Uh, tell people stories from their perspective, you know? Like, what is it that, what is it that they want out of their art practice, out of their life? Um, what's, what makes it worth it to them or not worth it to them? And I think Nicole is such a complex case. I mean, she's making a good living writing, writing, you know, what I think she herself would call not art, you know, personal finance blog, stuff like that. And, ha and is also making her art. And, you know, it's like that the end of her profile is like, it was an experience that I think was really disappointing to her on some level, but one that she is glad, I mean, she's, she's more than glad that she did. I mean, like, that's who she is and she's gonna keep doing it. And, and, and you know, this is, I think, the calculations that every artist has to make and sometimes continuously, continually make. Yeah. 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 Completely. Um, so maybe while we're in Cleveland for the day, we can jump to a part of the book that um, seems relevant for yeah. the city. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned in your introduction housing costs. Yeah. And um, in chapter six, I think it was space mm -hmm. time. Um, you yeah. bring up an issue that's relevant in most Rust Belt cities, um, where there's a tension between, on one hand, artists. Um, who are drawn to low rent spaces and those who have been part of those neighborhoods a long time already. What did you learn about those dynamics? Right, so I, uh, so important was the issue of housing costs and costs for workspace that I ended up devoting an entire chapter to it. 
And that gets to issues like gentrification, as I think you're indicating. And it also gets to the central question, which is one of the few questions that I made a point of asking everybody is like, can't you just live anywhere now because of the internet? And I know that maybe people in Cleveland don't want to hear this. And I live in Portland, which really thinks of itself as an art city. But I would say, but even Portland, um, the answer I got, not universally, but quite consistently was, yes, you no, you can't live anywhere. Certainly not when you're starting out. Now, it depends what your goals are as an artist, for sure. But if you're a young artist who has ambition, who wants to, quote, make it, whatever that means, which is, you know, I mean, I think fairly typical of young artists, then it's as important as it's ever been to live in one of the centers where those, for lack of a better word, industries are located. And by and large, that means New York, LA, or maybe Chicago. In music, it's a little bit more, but, they, and of course, those cities are getting more and more expensive. One response to that is for people to go and quote unquote pioneer other cities like Rust Belt cities. And, and of course that raises all kinds of issues of gentrification and the artists who are there already, but so does New York and LA. I mean, right, Boyle Heights in LA and you know Bushwick in New York. Um, look, these are, I think it's a very difficult moral question because you know people do what they have to do and they're making choices in a system that's structurally un unfair. I say, you know, our major housing program for artists in this country is the displacement of black people. Um, so I'm not, I mean, there are no sort of, sort of new, there are no neat answers to this. Um, what's, I mean, what, I know you have strong opinions about this. Um, well, I live near Detroit when right. we're having a similar problem as in Cleveland, sure. So um, I, I think it has to do with a sensitivity to how you enter a neighborhood, which is what, something one of your artists brought up in your book. And, um, you know, understanding that there was a community there before and that continues to be there and, um, you know, that and that their needs in some ways need to be most important um, as you enter that community. So, yeah, I think that's something that's often missing. I mean, I love that you you brought up um, the New York Times articles that frequently occur um, where they, they will celebrate a neighborhood as soon as the white artists move in. Um, yeah, um, that was really interesting to read. Yes, the artist that you mentioned moved to Pittsburgh another Rust Belt city. Um, the reason I said that thing about the Times is because I talked to some people in Detroit. I think after I had talked to you, I talked to some people in Detroit and that's what I, one at least of them said to me, like, oh, all of a sudden now they're artists because they're white artists. And the whole sort of Detroit construct, like, oh, it's this great, it's all BS, right? It's like these siloed, this very siloed little sort of gentrification space downtown. I mean, this is the impression I got. Right. And and the rest of the city is still being forgotten. I mean, it's it's appalling. But again, I mean, I I think it's fair to expect individual artists to be responsible, to try to be responsible to this, but I don't think it's fair to I mean, they can't they didn't, you know, they can't solve those situations and and they're not they may have uh, the privilege of whiteness, but they're often really not financially privileged. And are they're you know they're trying to keep it together. So again, it's not that I'm excusing them; it's that like it's complicated. It's it's mm -hmm. and that's why the I think the solutions have to be ultimately obviously they need to be systemic. Yeah. Did you encounter those issues of access um, and on the internet, like as you explore how artists are working on the internet, also? Well. Um, the main way that came up was that the sort of the big the big thing that artists are told now have been told and i think is true even though it's part of the silicon valley story is that you need to build an audience on the internet by putting your stuff out there relentlessly daily if possible and then some way you monetize that audience right you find a way to sell them things that are can't be priced to zero a digital maybe not maybe not digital objects experiences whatever um one of the big ways 
one of the big platforms are the, is, the, is crowdfunding, right? Kickstarter, especially, and Patreon. And what somebody said to me, I mean, an, an African-American artist said this to me, and also an executive at Kickstarter, like, you know, your ability to find people who can support you on Kickstarter or Patreon is also related to privilege, to financial, you know, who you're connected to, who, who are your people. And I would say more broadly, I mean, that's certainly true on the platforms. Maybe even more broadly, that's true of building an audience in general. But your your ability to monetize your audience is going to depend on how much money your audience has. Yeah. Right? Right. Um, so maybe could we talk a little bit? Um, there's a chapter, which was my favorite chapter, The Fourth Paradigm. Okay. Um, and in it, you discuss this co-option of the term creative by um, the corporate world as a way, um, you said something about quote, like to make people feel better about their jobs, which was such a terrific statement. Uh, and you talk about the emergence of this commercial logic of creativity in higher education um, as a rebranding move. Um, could you talk a little bit about what does the term creative misunderstand about art? Right. I'm going to back up a little bit, if you don't mind, yeah. especially because that word paradigm is, I mean, it's such a business speak word and it's not the language in which the book is written. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I also like the word and I thought it worked basic. But the reason the fourth paradigm is the fourth paradigm, as I suggested earlier, is that we haven't always thought of artists the same way. And artists have not, their, li their lives have not always been like this, right? So quickly. First paradigm, artists were artisans. This was true into, up to and including the Renaissance. There was no such thing as art with a capital A. Then because of changes that we call modernity, including the emergence of the free market of capitalism, we suddenly have this new thing, right? 18th century, art with a capital A. Art that almost in some ways replaces religion as a source of truth, as a source of spiritual meaning. And now the artist, now we distinguish between art and craft, artist and artisan, and the artist is almost like a priest or prophet of this new religion. There's a lot of mythology that goes with that, but I think it's also, you know, I mean, the, the, to the extent that we have this exalted idea of art now, in a genuine way, that's where it comes from. Even if it maybe comes with, you know, heroic genius, blah, 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 maybe it's gendered, whatever, but still, if we, if we you know, if we're committed to art, it's, it's that idea. Art is a place of truth-telling. Uh, the third paradigm kind of happens after World War II, which is that this, okay, so during that, sorry, during that second paradigm, artists were bohemians because they were living at the margins of the market, uh, partly to stay outside of the market, to stay pu away from the market and only dip their toe in it when they had to. And that's when the word bohemian arises in the 19th century. Then they become professionals, or some of them become professionals. We build this enormous uh, structure of arts institutions after the war, including MFAs, right? There were like eight MFA programs in 1940, and then there were like 150 in 1980. And that's across the arts, for-profit, non-profit. And a professional is someone who is shielded from the market by the institution they're part of. If you're a professor, you don't have to worry about tuition and donors and so forth. The university takes care of that. If you're an artist who sells through a gallery, whatever the problems of the gallery system, it's the gallerist who worries about the customers and keeping the shop open. Those institutions are weakening and breaking down. And at the same time, artists can now circumvent them. So I think we're entering a new paradigm, a fourth paradigm, where the artist is becoming what I call a producer, this kind of one person, small business. Okay, now I've finally gotten to your question. Um, but I want, I, I think I needed to explain all that. That's great. Um, yeah, so what do we call, I mean, I, I say producer, but the term that's gotten floated and in some ways the inciting thing for, that led to the writing of this book was this phrase creative entrepreneur. Artists are creative entrepreneurs. I hate the word creative in that phrase. And I hate the word entrepreneur. But they're not entrepreneurs. The space between you really like. No, I don't. I, I don't. I especially hate the space in between. I hate the whole phrase. Um, artists are not entrepreneurs. You're not starting a business that's going to add 
you know, that's going to float stock and like add employees and make you rich. You're just self-employed, which is another way of saying unemployed <laughs> um, and creative, which is what you asked me about. Well, in line with what I've been saying and what we've been talking about, the word creative as it's used in that context and many others, including art schools and businesses, is a business concept. It means something creative that can be sold for money in the market. Art is now being sucked into that definition so that art is now just another creative thing. Food, bicycles, um, you know, coding, fashion. It's all, you're a creative, it's all creative. So I think first of all, we're losing the distinction between art and everything else and the thing that makes art special. And also we are defining art and we're defining it in terms of the market. We're not just throwing it into the market, we're defining it in terms of the market. Yeah, yeah. wow. Thanks, that was beautiful. Um, I, I think we should turn to questions now. Sure. Sound good? Sure. Um, and a reminder that you can tweet your questions to at City Club or um, text them to this phone number. Um, but the first question, Bill, is did you find any artists who weren't struggling and working on side hustles? Yes, I definitely did. And I tried to present a range of examples in those two dozen profiles. Um, I mean, Nicole Deeker, again, she wouldn't call it art, it's writing, but she's, you know, she's making six figures at this point, but she's incredibly industrious. There are a few others who, who uh, I mean, I'm not going to go into the examples. Basically, people, I mean, it's like part of the reason I have these profiles is because every path is different. This is something artists need to know. Every path is different. Everyone has a different way to put it together. Some people, sometimes because they're lucky or they got into a thing early, like, you know, into blogging early, whatever, have able to find a way to make it work really well. Um, so it's not that it's not possible, but it, it, you need to understand that it's really not the norm. Six figures is not the norm. I would say the norm is maybe forty to $50,000 for someone who's really established themselves as a working artist. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I would say that's sort of like the the, the mode, right, in statistical terms, the most common thing that I came across. And for younger artists, 20,000, 30,000. Um, there's another question about how you see yourself um, reflected in or relating to the artists that you highlighted in the book. Okay, so as I make very clear, I am not an artist. I do think art is a thing and it's not the thing that I do. But um, I am a freelance writer. So in financial or economic terms, in terms of the structure of my life, it does to a certain extent resemble the writers, the, the artists, of course, the writers I was writing about and the artists in general. And I think it was that sort of inside understanding that uh, helped me very much to write the book. You have, there's a great story in the book about um, you're taking a dance criticism class. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Thank. That's that's how I started with all of this. I mean, never mind why I was in that dance criticism class in the first place. That I was interested in dance in college, and then a couple of years later, I was in journalism school, and there was a dance criticism class offered across the street at Barnard College, and I was interested. And I was again really lucky. There was a great teacher. She was a working critic named Toby Tobias, who just opened my eyes to the world, I mean, literally, and made me realize that that's what art was about. It wasn't about like acquiring culture, which was kind of the idea I grew up with, like the things that you need to know to be an educated man, but like actually finding it, like looking at what's in front of you. And that set me on the course to study English Lit and be a professor and then leave academia and write this book. And now you're, you're um. <laughs> All the and work you're doing to produce to to you know share this book with everyone. You're part of part of the you know the sharing of your work in a totally different way, right? Which you're used to. But um, it's a you know writing the book isn't enough now. Now there's part two. That's right. And and this is my third commercial book in the last twelve years, uh, nine years since the first one was published. And each time. Uh, the marketing is totally different. 
Like I'm probably going to do at least a dozen podcasts for this book. Hopefully Mm -hmm. three dozen if I can. Even six years ago, that was really not a thing. So that's another theme that artists stress is that it keeps changing. You have to really stay in intimate contact with how the market works in your field. Somebody in our audience would like to know how much worse are the conditions of art in the COVID area? Oh, in the COVID era, okay. I thought he was gonna ask anything else. Uh, Much, 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 much worse. It's a disaster. It's horrifying. Um, Again, digital content priced at zero. Artists have been told, no one's gonna pay you for your music. No one's gonna pay you for your writing. You have to figure out other ways to monetize. That means objects and it means physical objects and experiences. And experiences generally have meant live experiences which pay more and are also just natural to art, certain art form, most art forms. So musicians, again, a paradigmatic example, tour, 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 tour until you drop, 200 shows a year at least. I talked, profiled an artist in the book who's 28 and was getting burned out from touring. She was 28 when I talked to her. Uh, Authors like me, a big part of the way we earn our living now, many of us is to give talks. That's all gone away now, right? During COVID, no live anything. Yes, people are transitioning to online. They're only just beginning to figure out how to get any money from that. And there's no way they're going to get as much money as they were getting before. (laughs) Then all the venues are closed, Uh, not just the performance venues, galleries and museums and so forth. So many of them are foundering. There was one unbelievable statistic I came across. 90% of people who run independent music venues think that if this lasts into next year, they're going to close permanently, okay? One of the themes in the book is that the middle tier, the indie press, the indie label, the mid-tier gallery, in addition to the mid-tier artist, have, are, are getting wiped out. This is happening at an accelerated pace. Live Nation has the money to get through this, so the concert industry is gonna consolidate. And big tech is already 25% or more larger than it was a few months ago before the pandemic started. Wow. Yeah, that's what, so, and, and other, I could go on. There are other factors. It's awful, it's a disaster. Nobody, honestly, nobody knows what the hell is gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, nobody knows what the hell is gonna happen. And if they don't pass another uh, relief bill, God help us. All right, thank you. Sorry, I would like to be happier, but I can't. Um, There's a great question. How did we get to a place where we don't value art in the sense that we don't want to pay a fair and equitable price for it? What does that mean for the future of art and artists? That's that's, that's a weird book in a nutshell, right? Yes, yes, or certainly the heart of the book. I mean, nobody ever thought, I have a whole chapter knocking down the arguments or a section of a chapter knocking down the arguments about why art should be free Silicon Valley funded arguments. Nobody ever made these arguments before art was free. I think we got to the point where we thought that art should be free because it became free. And it became free because of piracy, but also because of venture capital. Somebody said this to me in the book, there are three kinds of free. There's piracy free, uh, ad funded free, which we used to have and still have to a little bit, and venture capital free, which is you know like with Uber, Uber still loses money on every ride. And the bet is they're gonna drive all the cabbies out of work, Mm. out of business, destroy Lyft, and then start charging the real um, fare. That's that's the venture capital model in the tech age, Uh, Spotify. So it's partly fake, this free. And um, listen, I think people should pay for art to the extent that they can, and we need to rewrite the ethics. Mainly, I think that the tens of billions of dollars that are going every year to the platforms instead of creators needs by force of legislation and litigation to be redirected towards the creators. That's the real answer. Um, So somebody's asking me, someone's asking me on my experience as an artist and educator, could I survive on my work as an artist who pays for the kind of art that I create? Um, 
so I, I, I mean, I remember your statistic in the book, something like 30% of faculty at universities are professors. Is that, am I getting that right? Uh, that's across, that's across the whole uh, sector. I think in, uh, in art, it's much smaller. Smaller. Okay. Yeah. 7%. She couldn't verify that number for me. When I read that, I almost wanted to write to the president of the university and thank, thank them again. Um, but, you know, interestingly, in the last 10 years at my school, we haven't hired a single art professor. Um, we've had retirements and uh, fibers, sculpture, you name it, every area and we haven't hired a single person to replace them. They've been replaced by adjunct instructors. And you know, when I read your book, I, I thought the next time I make this case for hiring somebody, you know, I'm gonna talk about not only what's needed for our students, but that as in some ways in the book, you make this case that it's now academic institutions that are subsidizing artists and enabling artists to work. And, you know, that's, you know, there's, seven artists out there who could have had these positions and you know had a career who who don't have them now because the adjuncts are too busy to really be able to make their own work um so so yeah i, I was really in many ways fortunate to um get an academic career pretty early on and um i mean i will say though it it's it's still challenging teaching um you know, it's supposed to be 40% of what I do and research 40%, but during the academic year, teaching easily becomes 60 to 80%, and my research gets relegated to the summer. Um, and the, you know, university grants, which I really rely upon to make work, um, they're becoming tougher and tougher to get. Um, you know, arts funding, you had another great statistic in the book. I love this. I'm going to get a t-shirt made of this, which is that the NEA budget, which was, I think, 162 million, um, is is the the budget for military bands is three times larger. Three. Two three times, times more? Three. Three times. three times larger. Three times larger. The NEA. The budget. Yeah. Um, so there's really little funding for arts. Yeah, it's it is becoming difficult. Even even having this position, it's becoming hard to fund my work. And in COVID, it's even harder because now the university has these weird rules, like they'll pay for paint, but they won't pay for um, for me to hire somebody to design a website, which is really like what I need. So it's it's almost impossible now during COVID to make work. Um, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so Cleveland has a robust artist community. What can Cleveland do to become more artist friendly? I, I don't know the specifics of Cleveland's situation. Um, a few people in not, you know, cities that are not centers have talked to me about their situation. Somebody who lives in Durham trying to get the mayor to put more, more value on the arts, more municipal funding into the arts make, uh, you know, see, see art not just as an economic asset, which tends to be how it's pitched, but actually, you know, like an ass, like a cultural, I mean, obviously cultural, but like just, I would say, I mean, I would say a human right or a, a, a right of citizenship, um, just as education and healthcare are. Um, how do you foster an arts community? I think it's something that cities have been struggling with. I mean, having low rent, which I take it they do in Cleveland, relatively low rent, is a good way to start. But um, I don't know enough about the situation. People have also said to me, someone who actually was at CIA at the Cleveland Institute of Art uh, and then was in Delaware, um, that those sort of regional, um, regional elites have also been degraded, right? Partly because of corporate consolidation so the CEOs and companies that may have once sort of been the pillars of the cultural community and that built the Cleveland Orchestra and the Cleveland Museum of Art. I mean, terrific institutions in Cleveland a century ago. Um, you know, their, their headquarters are now in New York or Seattle or Chicago. So, so, you know, even if we're not talking about buying gallery works, you know, you need to have, I mean, patrons, you know, open-minded patrons are a really important part, quite frankly, of of the picture. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so there's sort of another question that has a regional bent, but more about public funding. Um, Cuyahoga County has some public funding for the arts um, through Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. Did you find that places with public funding for the arts make a difference in artists' ability to get by? Does public funding create a better context and ecosystem in which artists can thrive? Right. So I'm, this is the, I'm going to give one example. Uh, the place that, as far as I understand it, is is known to be the the place that supports the arts best is Minnesota, huh. the Twin Cities. They have apparently great. Okay, so a few years ago, Minnesota voters passed a referendum where a fraction, there was a fractional increase in sales tax, and a fraction of that went to the arts, and then also to some other stuff. So it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction but assessed on every purchase that sales tax is assessed on. And it really, really adds up. And it was like a 25 year commitment. I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, it puts their public arts funding at, at, at uh, five or 10 times higher than the national average. Um, yes, I think, I, so I, have, I don't have a comprehensive view, but I think that to, I guess also answer the previous question, if, if, you know, something like this could be really, really valuable and important. Yeah. Do you know how that funding is distributed? Is it through a grant program or is it all public art? I don't know, but I don't think it's all public art. I think it definitely includes a grant program. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's purpose? I mean, shouldn't be. It could be, be part of everything. And it's such a small thing. I mean, when you look at the actual number, it's like a, a fraction of a cent on every dollar of purchase, like a small fraction of a cent, but it adds up. Yeah. yeah. What's the role of intermediary organizations, those who receive grants and then turn around and hire artists, or are they helping? Right. That's a good question. Um, I think that those are very valuable and necessary institutions. I think that historically maybe there's been um, a tendency for those institutions to also underpay or non-pay artists. I mean, I'm making very broad generalizations, but I'm thinking of one of the activist organizations that I talk about in the book called WAGE, Working Artists in the Greater Economy which has been working for the last 12 years on behalf of workers, not just artists, but all workers. And here's what they said. Look, artists do a ton of educational work for museums, art spaces, and so forth. They give talks. They sit on panels. They do classes. They present their work. Often not paid, paid underpaid, paid erratically. We're going to create a system that holds these institutions accountable. I'm not going to go into all the details, but the point is those institutions are really important, those intermediary institutions, but they also, you know, they're, they don't have lavish budgets, except maybe for the president's salary, but, you know, or there's this ethos in the art that's arts that you sort of help out, you know, it's like a gift economy, you know, cause you, but I think artists need to be a better stronger, more confident about holding those institutions to account. Does that, I mean, you're involved in this world. What do you think of this? I, I mean, I don't feel I am though, because yeah. I don't have the safety net of the university. Like the nonprofit world? Yeah, uh, yeah, not so much. I, I mean, in some ways I feel culpable if anything, when I read about wage it reminded me of, um, an exhibition that I did. It was an artist project, but it involved inviting other artists to participate. And um, we invited something like 80 artists to participate to have an auction that was an artwork on eBay. And the, the point wasn't selling something, it was that the auction itself was the artwork. And But we had, we had one artist, um, somebody from London, write us and say, how much are you going to pay me to participate in this artist project? And we had no money, and um, but it really, you know, when I read about wage, you know, I think like we should have been able to pay every artist, and um, yeah. So I saw it really more from the perspective of um, somebody who was, you know, able to convince artists to participate in something, 
you know, based on a promise of exposure, a promise of being creative, but not, not, you know, helping, helping to sustain them to pay their rent and things like that. But it's hard. I mean, you could have, I mean, you, maybe I should have offered to pay you to do this or the city club should have offered to pay you to do this. Um, what we're doing right now. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's the case, but I do think that I've had to think more about this on, from both ends of the equation. And I think it's good that people are thinking about it. I mean, if you don't have a budget, you don't have a budget. And I think that, um, I think there are plenty of situations in which it's okay to ask to do for free work if you're, if you're not profiting from the situation yourself. And some situations which is not even okay to ask. But it should also be okay for artists to say what the artist said to you in London. It's like, you know, you're asking me for my time. How are you going to compensate me for that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, you point out that, you know, studio assistants in New York, something like $11 an hour still sometimes. And so, um, yeah. That's part of what wage is working on. They want to hold artists accountable too for how much they pay their studio assistants. And they and when they talk about the labor in the art world, they're also talking about art handlers, museum guards, everyone. You know, after all, the art world in particular is trading commodities that can be priced in seven figures, right? Millions of dollars are circulating through that economy. And Wage is saying, look, we all contribute to creating that value and that value, need, that financial reward needs to be distributed more equitably. Yeah. Um, so this, you have two questions asking for some optimism and hope <laughs> in a good way. Um, was there anything in um, the interviews or in, in your explorations um, that did give you some hope about the situation? Okay. Um, again, okay, for individuals, I'm not gonna say that it's hopeless. I'm not trying to say that it's hopeless. People find ways to make it work. I talk about people who do. There are ways to make it work, but don't, don't buy the line that it's easy or that it's guaranteed. You can make it, you can do it, if only. Um, and, then I, and then I talk about things that, I, that people are starting to do like wage and things that I think we need to do in the last chapter. I wasn't hopeful then and I, I, I always, I'm not a hopeful person, but you know, I do think something is different now. I, um, I've lived through a succession of what have been called the start of a new progressive era. Barack Obama's election, Occupy Wall Street, even Bill de Blasio's election. And I was always skeptical at the time. I thought, let's wait until we're in the progressive era before we talk about the start of a progressive era. I think this time is different because the way it's happening is different. It's not one person's election or a deliberately disorganized protest movement. It's political mobilization. So this isn't in the book, but I'm hopeful because the larger picture, which is in the book, is that if we're really gonna make life more tolerable for artists, we need to make more life more tolerable for everyone below the top in this economy. We need to rebuild the whole economy, the whole middle class for everyone and take care of gig workers in the way that we once took care of factory workers. I mean, we didn't take care of them. They agitated for legislative reform, that kind of thing. But, but I'm more hopeful that this might be possible the next few years than I've been in my entire adult life, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I think the book is very helpful. I think anytime you lay out all of the problems so that you can see them and you understand them, that's a step in the right direction. It's when we, you know, pretend this doesn't exist, then that's a problem. But um, I mean, I, I feel after reading this book, I would completely rewrite my bio. You know, I would define myself differently as an artist. I would introduce myself because because I could articulate the problems better and I understand how um, some of these exchanges are working a little bit better. Um, so that seems only positive. Thanks, thanks. I mean, I wrote this book to be a tool also for individual artists, for arts organizations that are, you know, the activist organizations. Um, 
Um, you know, and it was also a thank you letter written with a lot of love to artists. And um, I think it's worth reading for that reason also. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, Bill and Rebecca, this has been a really wonderful um, conversation. You managed to, I think, um, depress everybody and then lift us up again, which is like, which is okay. That's okay. That's, me. That's what I do. It was a journey. It really was. Um, so thank you both so much. And I want to thank everybody who tuned in to, uh, to join us for our forum today featuring Bill Deresowitz. He's the author of The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. He was in conversation with Professor Rebecca Modrak of the Penny Stamps School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. Our forum today is part of our Authors in Conversation series, which is sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. Our community partner today is Arts Cleveland. City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, KeyBank Nordson, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, along with PNC as well as many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them when in supporting our work when you make a contribution online or become a member. You can do that at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Maltrop. Stay strong, stay healthy. Please wash your hands and keep your distance and wear a mask and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is now adjourned.